I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 4. We will look at the first five verses of Micah 4 this morning. If you are using the blue pew Bible, you can find that on page 778. Our title, sermon title is The Mountain of God. The key words for our worshipers in training are day, mountain, and peoples. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. This morning, we are continuing in our series through the book of Micah, which, as we've said in the past uh, several weeks, is structured around three cycles of sermons. Each cycle begins with a proclamation of judgment against sin and concludes with a word of hope of salvation for the people of God. In the first cycle, in chapters 1 to 2, we saw God was going to judge Israel and Judah because of the political and pastoral classes of Israel and the way that they were severely oppressing the poor among them. And yet, nevertheless, we saw the cycle end on a brief note of hope. Despite the failings of their leaders, God would be the shepherd king upon whom his people could rely. In chapter 3, we saw the beginning of this second cycle of sermons, which, takes, which will take us all the way through chapter 5. We saw that Micah begins by circling back to condemn once more the sin that so plagued the political and pastoral leaders of the day, namely the love of money. God would judge, he says, the rulers and the prophets and the priests and the people for their idolatry. He said the city and the temple to which they looked with arrogance would be brought to nothing. And today in chapter 4, we see a stark contrast with the end of chapter 3. It's perhaps one of the most jarring transitions in all of Scripture. Verses 1 to 5 this morning of chapter 4 in Micah, we will see God's message of salvation burst forth not only for Israel, but also for the whole world to hear. So in order to feel that contrast, I actually want to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 9, and we'll read all the way to 4, verse 5. He says, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it. And many, many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law 
and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords and into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Tim Keller relates the story of two men in prison. One day, one of the men learns that his wife and child had died. The other man's family remained alive, and he knew this. How do you think each of these men fared during their imprisonment? with this information. It's probably just what you would think. The man whose family died, wasted away, and died himself two years later. The man with the still living family was able to endure his sentence and was reunited with his family ten years later. This is the difference that hope can make even in the most difficult and trying of circumstances. What you know of the future has a tremendous impact on your experience now. Like the news of his family's well-being, the passage before us serves in a similar fashion. It serves as an injection of hope into the heart of God's people to help us remember that there are brighter days coming. And as we consider these five verses this morning, I want to do so under three headings. First, in verses 1-2, to two, I want you to notice that God is in fact bringing about the obedience of faith of all nations. Second, in verses 3-4, to four, we will see lasting peace dawn upon the people of God. And third in verse 5, we'll see that we are all faced with the choice. Whom shall we serve? God or some idol? So we will see these three things. God is bringing about the obedience of faith from all the nations. He will bring about peace and security, lasting peace and security for His people. And then we are faced with a choice. Whom shall we serve? And full disclosure, the first of those points is a bit longer than the second. So don't start to panic if you notice it's a little late by the time we get to point two. So first, verses uh, one and two, we'll see our first point that what Micah says, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, above all the hills, and many nations shall flow to it, and they shall learn the ways of God. Because of the emphasis of some popular 
literature somewhat recently, it, it may be tempting to think Micah is referring here by the phrase, in the latter days, to a very brief period of time just before the return of Christ. But Scripture actually uses this term, latter days, in a variety of, ra- in a variety of ways. Um, it, scripture uses it in reference to a variety of future interventions when God would bring about a promised restoration to His people and ultimately to the world. The prophet's use of the phrase latter days, for instance, indicated things such as the restoration of the Jews from their Babylonian captivity, the birth of the Messiah, and the final judgment followed by the eternal state of glory when Christ returns. The New Testament continues this trend as well. For example, Peter, in his sermon at Pentecost, quotes the prophet Joel and intentionally links Joel's prophecy of what was to come in the days ahead with the church age and describes it using the language of Micah 4.1. He says, in the last days. And so perhaps another or a more helpful way of translating this phrase in the latter days would be in days to come. Micah's intent, rather than describing what is merely to occur right at the very end of redemptive history, his intent is to designate, as one commentator puts it, a future not presently discernible. One quite characteristically and qualitatively different than our present reality. And so here's the idea. And this, is a, this will be especially important when we get to verse 4. But the Old Testament prophets longed for, expected, and foresaw a day of judgment and salvation that when we look at it through their lenses, often seems like it is one singular event, one singular day. But when Christ comes in the incarnation, dies, is buried, raised from the dead, ascends on high, and sends His Spirit to rule His church for the duration of church history, we learn that what may have appeared as one singular day, as we read the prophets, is a multi-staged event. And so Christ inaugurates and commences these latter days with His first coming. And He will consummate them with His final coming. Micah then essentially is saying that he is looking to the day of Christ and onward from the fulfillment of all that he's about to say. Well, what does he say? What exactly is the mountain of the house of the Lord that is supposed to rise above all hills and mountains on earth? As we read at the end of chapter 3, we saw the mountain of the house would be destroyed and left a heap of rubble. But while it is simply called the mountain of the house in verse 12 of chapter 3, we read here in 4.1 that the mountain is the mountain of the house of the Lord. It doesn't just belong to Israel, but it belongs to God. In the ancient world, temples were built on top of mountains. They were designed to look like mountains, or stairways to heaven. You can think about Babylonian ziggurats. 
The temple mountain represented a deity's presence with his people. It represented a gateway to heaven. It represented the mountain deity's rule over the territory it dominates. In fact, in Genesis, Eden, as in the Garden of Eden, it was on top of a mountain, and the garden in Eden represented the holiest place on earth. It represented the temple of God, the innermost place. Adam was the world's first prophet, priest, and king. When God then gives Moses and the Israelites instructions for building the tabernacle, which served as the blueprint for the temple, it shouldn't surprise us that the entire design of the temple represented a climb up a mountain from the common earth below to the holy, sacred dwelling of God above. The mountain of the house then is a reference to the temple, the mountain of God. The place where He abides. The place where He dwells with man and reigns over the chaos below. The temple that shall one day, He says, be destroyed. But it shall not remain in ruins. In fact, one day it shall be established as the highest mountain on earth. And so everything in its shadow is under the reign of God, and as the highest mountain on earth, that would be everything. But the temple, as we said, it, and as Micah's prophesying in chapter 3, it, it was in fact destroyed in 586 B.C. Just over a hundred years after Micah's prophecy. But it was rebuilt by Herod in 37 B.C. But it was destroyed again in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And it no longer exists today. An Islamic mosque actually sits atop Israel's mountain today. Does that mean that we are awaiting the temple to be rebuilt and the mountain, a relatively small mountain, about 2,400 feet above sea level, are we expecting this mountain to rise, literally to be taller than Mount Everest? In a word, no. The New Testament's interpretation and application of the Old Testament's prophecies concerning the temple make it clear that that we should expect something much grander than a physical temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. For time, we will limit ourselves to one example. Warning against the dangers of sexual immorality and believers marrying unbelievers, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So you see, brothers and sisters, we are the temple of God. Christ is the cornerstone, and He brings this passage in Micah to fulfillment as He builds His kingdom, His 
temple through the ingathering of believers throughout the world. And notice how this happens. Micah goes on, he says that the people shall flow up this mountain. In Jeremiah 51, 44, we read of the practice of the nations flowing in boats to Babylon for practices of pagan worship. Here we read of a reversal of their idolatry. No longer shall they flow toward Babylon, but toward Zion. No longer toward Marduk, but Messiah. And notice the direction of the stream. Water doesn't flow uphill, right? It is the sovereign work of God that the nations are coming. And what do they say? What do we say as we stream up the mountain of God into His presence? Say, they long to be with Him. Learn from Him. To walk in obedience to what He commands. The ingathering of the nations is brought about by the Word of God. It says, from Zion shall go forth the law, or the teaching, and the Word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And indeed it did. Jesus commissioned His disciples to be His witnesses starting in Jerusalem and moving out to Judea and Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. Praise God that such a march as this of the Gospel continues yet today. We, Redeemer Baptist Church, we exist in partial fulfillment of this promise. We are a part of the nations, the ethnos, the Gentiles who are streaming up the mountain of God. This promise made by God through the prophet Micah over 2,700 years ago should bring great joy to our hearts because it is in part about us. And many more, not just us. The reach of the gospel continues to spread. Even though our culture is in a rapid, breakneck, moral and spiritual decline, God's Word hasn't failed and continues to bring about the obedience of faith from people all over the world. Well, what else shall come to pass in days to come? according to Micah. Look with me in verses 3-4 to for a second observation. God will bring His people into lasting rest and peace. There will be civic rest and personal rest. First, we see a coming civic rest. God shall be the judge between many peoples settling disputes for nations far away. He says, army men will become agrarian men. Fearless warriors will be farm workers. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall no longer go to war with one another or have any need to learn and prepare for war. Clearly, this is a day that has not yet fully arrived. Just look at our country, for instance. War has been a constant theme for the American people. I didn't calculate it out myself, but 
I checked a few sources, and the numbers are actually kind of overwhelming. Apparently, we have been at war in some form or fashion 227 years out of our 244 years of existence as a nation. 93% of our existence as a nation has been spent at war. War is a tragic thing. But sadly, far too many of our leaders seem to have itchy trigger fingers and we've been entangled in so many needless, unconstitutional and immoral wars. Ironically, the United Nations building in New York City actually bears this verse on a wall mounting, despite the building's closer resemblance to the Tower of Babel than the mountain of God. The church, however, not a nation state, but the church is united to the Prince of Peace. We read here in verses 3 and 4. How sweet a promise then, given our context, that there is a day coming when we shall no longer have any need for war. God will bring about peace upon the earth by His Word. And with that civic rest, there will be personal rest. Every man shall be free to sit at ease under his vine and under his fig tree. Unlike the turmoil which had overtaken Israel in Micah's day. Remember the greedy land barons gathering land, produce, and wealth for themselves, stealing it from the poor among them? Unlike that, each man could enjoy the fruits of his own labor in this day that Micah envisions. There would be no need to fear enemies without or enemies within. Why? He says, because God has spoken. He will bring it about. He will bring about this rest for which we all long. But again, we must ask the question, when will this be? Because it doesn't seem to describe any reality, any experience we have today. But my friends, this is the great hope of the gospel. Because although we and all of humanity deserve every ounce of wrath described in this book, we have been given a gift of the highest quality and value by God whom we have sinned against so grievously. He gave us His only Son. He gave us Jesus Christ. Born of woman. Born under the law. In order that He might redeem those who are under the law. Jesus was beaten so that we might one day beat our swords and spears into farming equipment. Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that one day nation might not lift up sword against nation. Jesus was nailed to a tree so that one day you might sit peacefully at rest under yours. We can, until then, however, enjoy, through union with Christ, the peace of God that surpasses understanding. Even when the earth gives way beneath us. And we know that even now, nations and individuals who come under the rule of Christ can rest under His merciful reign. 
And third, and finally, in verse 5, we see a call to action. God is bringing in the nations. And He has began and will fulfill in total a rest and a peace for His people. But there is a call upon us. A call to action in verse 5. In light of these wonderful and glorious truths, we, brothers and sisters, are faced with a choice. Whom shall you serve? The peoples we read each walk in the name of its God. But Micah says, we shall walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah has thrown down the gauntlet. Yes, he says, there shall be many nations stream up the mountain of God, but not all and not many yet. Today, there are still many who walk the path of idolatry. Many who serve the powerless gods of the nations. But not us, he says. Not those whom God has redeemed. We walk in the name of Yahweh. What then shall it be, brothers and sisters? We are no strangers to a buffet line for seeking spiritual nourishment. Oh, I'll take a little Jesus with a little Buddha. Don't mind if I add in some secular humanism and Taoism while I'm at it. I'm really into some of the practices of the Hindus and the Muslims. And so I just want to kind of mix, pick and choose what I like and I'll leave behind what I don't. That's, that's the message that we get. More and more we are called to serve the gods of the age. Evermore called to syncretism, to synthesize our faith with the worlds and to bow down before the pantheon of gods of the West. So how are we doing? How are you doing? In what ways do you find yourself tempted to capitulate to the demands of the pagan world around you? What idols of the heart have the firmest grip on your soul? How do you personally tend to elevate yourself in your day-to-day life? Because that... Isn't that really who stands behind each of these so-called gods? Aren't all the gods of the world just placeholders for the God self? We are tempted to walk in the name of various deities because they because we believe they will serve our needs and interests. We worship sex because We want to use other people to satiate our sinful desires for revenge or acceptance or solace, praise or excitement. We worship money because we believe we can use it to enhance our own personal experience of life, often at the expense of others. We we worship food because it helps temporarily perhaps to ease a broken heart. We worship physical pain because it helps us escape emotional pain that we live in every day. We worship the praise of man because we want everyone to see and speak about us in exactly the same way we see and speak about ourselves. 
We worship the idea of having perfect children because we want our lives to be easier and for people to see just what amazing parents we are. We worship order and serenity because we don't like being stressed out. We want a more restful life. The gods of this world, they all offer all of these things and many more to you. And in the short run, often they can deliver on some of them. But to quote the immense theologians from the band Poison, every rose has its thorn. Life lived under the sun in pursuit of all that's under the sun comes at a cost. It will cost you your life. You may get all the world has to offer. And as we've seen in the previous passages in Micah so far, there is a day coming when you will lose it all. To seek salvation by means of any other name than Jesus Christ, to seek salvation outside of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will result in nothing other than total, ultimate, infinite loss. We are not to synthesize, to syncretize our faith with others. We are to believe and proclaim the one true faith spread through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is the answer to all of this? To this question, whom shall we serve? The answer is that it's to walk in the name of the Lord your God forever. It's to realize that while we aren't seeking adversity in this life, it will often come. It's to remember life will at times be very difficult, suffocating even. But brothers and sisters, there's a brighter day coming. There is a day coming when God will bring about the full experience of all that He has promised. You may taste it now in part. Because every promise He made finds its yes and its amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have a share of that joy now and you may have it in full in days to come. And so let us take stock of ourselves. Are you in Christ? Have you believed in the name of the only Son of God? I pray that you have. And if you haven't, I pray that you will. And you may do so now. Look to Christ and live, my friend. 